today and over the next couple weeks, we're going to be talking about gospel-centered discipleship. Gospel-centered discipleship is something that we're kind of implementing into our church, church-wide through our community groups. And uh, we wanted to talk about it for the first couple weeks here in the fall, just so that everybody has a big idea of what we're talking about. Now, do not fret, because if you are not a part of our community groups, nor think that you ever will be a part of our community groups, these sermons are still absolutely essential for you to hear as a believer. So um, I'm hoping that it's going to still serve you well, and perhaps God will use it to inspire you to be a part of community groups or gospel-centered discipleship, what we're doing in our church. But nevertheless, I'm still hoping it's going to be good for you. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in. Today we're going to be in Matthew 28, 1 Corinthians 15. A little bit at Matthew 28, we'll go to 1 Corinthians 15. That'll that'll be where we spend the bulk of our time. And uh, we're going to talk about the gospel, which is always a good thing to talk about. But before we go into it, I'm going to pray, and then um, we'll jump in. So we'll be, as I said, we'll be back in Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, in a, in a few more weeks. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. I pray for myself, Lord, that um, my mind would not be scattered, but focused, and you would help me... Um, think clearly about the things that I feel like you've told me and want me to communicate, God, and that it would be um, effective and that it would be Christ-centered and that it would be edifying for us all. I pray that as we look at your word, we would be amazed by Jesus and that you would lead us to a deep understanding of who Christ is and what he's done for us, and that would translate itself out into Um, people that are on fire for Christ, ready to live out um, their lives for Christ, but it's all based in who Christ is and what he's done for us. We thank you, God, for this time. I pray that we would all be served well through your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, I'm 37 years old, and I like to say my age a lot because it always kind of amazes people. I have to prove that I'm not like 20. Um, But I'm 37 years old, and this has finally just happened to me. It happens for us all at different ages. I've, I've heard young guys that first get married, it happens in that first six months, and for some people, and we all don't like them, it happens for way later on in their life. But I've come to the point now at 37 where um, I've realized that either my clothes are shrinking or I am getting larger. It's one of those two things, um, and I'm pretty sure that it's me getting larger, and it's not the good kind of larger because I don't lift weights or really do one drop of exercise ever. And so I'm pretty sure it's the bad kind of getting bigger, and so something's going to have to happen. I'm either going to have to start eating differently and start exercising or just, you know, buy the bigger clothes, which is probably what's going to have to happen. But it's finally happened in my life, and I've come to the point where I've realized, all right, I can no longer, at this particular time, keep going down the road the way the things are. Something's going to have to change. All right, I say all that to say, um, not to just point out, you know, my, my stage in life, or perhaps your stage in life, but um, for the, the point of kind of equating it to discipleship. I think that for all of us who are in Christ, we start walking down the road of discipleship. We start walking down the road of being a follower of Christ. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves at this place where, all right, something's going to have to change because I found myself in a rut. I found myself no longer amazed by Jesus or I found myself in this continual sin. I found myself never, ever leading anybody to Jesus. And I've, I've hit the end of the road and something's going to have to change, something big. And I'm either going to have to do this or do that, but I can't live in this particular place 
anymore. And so what I'm hoping to do is, as we're going into gospel-centered discipleship, is help us all who are in that rut, perhaps, um, that we would realize that we don't have to remain in that rut. And instead of realizing that it's all based on what you got to do, that it's not based on what you got to do at all, it's based on what Christ has done. And so we're going to be looking, as I said, at gospel-centered discipleship. And this is something that we're going to be implementing into the church over the next three weeks. This big focus on discipleship and you, helping you make disciples and grow as a disciple. And so what I thought is, before we get into all those things about making disciples, what you have to do as a disciple, and all those kind of things, I think it would be much better for us if we look at that gospel-centered piece first as we talk about gospel-centered discipleship. Because... It's really easy for us all in this fast food, what do I got to do kind of culture to, to put aside those truths and say, yeah, 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 okay, I got that about Jesus, about what he did for me. Now, what do I need to do? What is it that I got to do? Um, and I think it's best for us to take one week to lay aside what we need to do and just go back to that gospel-centered piece and find ourselves, Lord willing, be amazed at the truths of the gospel, the deep truths, the deep things that Christ has declared of us first. Before we get into what you have to do, which will be next week, so come back. Um, I just want to talk about what Christ has done. Now, so today means what I'm hoping, one of my goals is that your life will be completely, in a good way, interrupted. Completely interrupted in the most Christ-exalting way. Now, um, I've been preparing for this for, I don't know, we've been thinking about this for about nine months or so. So um, I've been reading a lot of uh, John Piper, Matt Chandler, J.D. Greer, Jonathan Dodson, um, a lot of old guys. Um, I guess they're not really old, but a lot, of, a lot of people I've been reading. And so I'm not really sure where, you know, I actually say anything original and where it's really everything they've said. And the Apostle Paul, that's the old guy. And so really um, everything I'm going to say he- here today is, is not original with me at all. So if I know it came from them, I'll cite them, but otherwise I probably didn't come up with it in my own anyway. So um, what I want to do is this. As we're talking about gospel-centered discipleship, I want to read the Great Commission. We're going to start in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And um, I want to read it a couple times, and then as we're reading it, I want us to think about the way that we read the Great Commission usually. The Great Commission is at the end of Matthew. I got this like piece of lint on my nose. It's, you know those things that float? My nose is itching like crazy. All right. Um, so on Matthew chapter 28, Jesus is about to send into heaven, and it's the very last thing that he's going to actually say to anybody. And so as he's going into heaven, he's ascending into heaven, and he's leaving the disciples with one last thought, if you will. Um, this is the last thought that he, leads, that he leaves them before he ascends into heaven. And I want to read it, and I want to kind of highlight or focus on or put emphasis on, I think, the way most of us read Matthew 28. And it says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. So we're already hearing those, those things. Okay, that's what i got to do. Jesus is telling me to go, and he's telling me to make disciples of all nations baptizing. Okay, I got to go make the disciples, and the way I got to do is baptize. I'm teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. So as I'm hearing these last thoughts of Jesus, what he's telling me is, 
The way that I have to be a believer is I got to go. I got to go make disciples. I need to baptize people. I need to teach them. And also, they need to and I, I need to. All of us that are in Christ or not in Christ, we all need to observe everything that he's commanded. We need to follow the rules, follow the law, follow these commands. Those are the things that I'm hearing out of Matthew 28, these last thoughts. And he, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so he's telling me I got to go make disciples. And disciples, uh, making disciples is discipleship. And so I think that most of us, it, especially if we've grown up in church for a long period of time, the way we read, and I'm not saying this is wrong. I'm not saying this is wrong. I'm saying that perhaps there's even a bigger overarching way to understand the Great Commission as we get into this. But as we look at discipleship, making disciples, these things that Jesus tells us to do, it usually plays itself out in one of two ways, or perhaps even both. The first thing is this making disciples means, okay, Jesus is telling me I got to go do evangelism. I've got to go do mission. I've got to go proclaim the gospel to people so that someone who's not yet a Christian believes in Jesus and becomes a Christian. That's one of the things I got to do. The other thing I have to do is as a disciple, as a disciple or someone who is um, being discipled or when we talk about discipleship is I have to grow in my maturity. I have to grow in my holiness. I have to, in my life, see sin, be put to death. Romans eight thirteen and, and Colossians three five these ideas of you know put to death sin by the by the power of the spirit put to death all the things that are um, not of Christ etc cetera, etc cetera. so those are the two ways that it kind of plays itself out when I hear the fact that Jesus tells me I need to be a disciple I need to go lead people to Jesus and do evangelism and I need to kill sin in my life now don't hear me say that those things are bad <laughs> I think those are absolutely essential things to be doing but interestingly enough. Um, if we focus in on those two particular things about discipleship, both of those are primarily based on our performance. They're primarily based on what we do, not what Jesus has already done. And I think that can be problematic for us because here's the huge question that I think probably troubles us all. If that's discipleship, if being a disciple and making disciples keys in on our performance and what we need to do, then whenever we don't go lead someone to Christ and see an unbeliever come, become a believer, we feel like a failure. We find ourselves in this rut, like, oh my goodness, something's got to change. Or if we have this pervading sin that continues on in our life that we can't seem to shake, maybe even like the Apostle Paul, the thorn in the flesh that we can never get rid of and it never seems to go away, then we automatically might jump and think, I'm a terrible disciple. I never lead anyone to Jesus, and I don't seem to be able to get rid of this sin at all. And so discipleship for us becomes a scary term or something we just feel like we're a failure at. And so um, when we're talking about gospel-centered discipleship, I want to kind of change the field. Now, again, don't think I'm not saying, because I'm not, (laughs) I'm not saying at all that you shouldn't try to do evangelism and lead people to Jesus. Absolutely you should. Um, Or... I'm not saying that you shouldn't grow in maturity and holiness. You should be trying to put sin to death in your life. But what I think is, when we're going to think of being a disciple and discipleship in terms, I think that it's better for us not to base those things and our performance and the things that we need to do in order to be a disciple, but instead base those things in what Christ has done already for us and what he's declared about us. Okay? So, um... That's what I'm saying. Now, what does this mean, Fudd? What are you trying to actually get at? I'm going to explain to you. I'm glad you asked. Um, 
some of you might just say, Fudd, um, that just sounds like semantics. That just sounds like you're trying to say one thing, but making it another thing and just switching words and being fancy with your words. Um, there's another guy <laughs> a couple years ago used to come here and he could never use the word semantics. He always got it wrong and he would say schematics. That's all schematics, Fudd. I'm not just saying it's all schematics. I'm actually saying there's a distinct difference here in semantics. Uh, it's not semantics. There's a distinct difference in what I'm trying to say. Um, so let's read the Great Commission one more time. And I'm hoping that as we read it this time, I'm going to put different emphasis on some words in the Great Commission. And I want you to see what I mean by saying our discipleship, I don't want us all to just base it on what we need to do. Though I'm not saying we don't need to do things. But instead, we need to first base it on what Christ has done and let that inform how we do things. Let that overflow in who we've already said we are in Christ. Overflow in the way we make disciples. Overflow in the way we pursue holiness etc etc so let's let's read the great commission one more time and i want you to notice the emphasis i think that is key in a gospel-centered way of making disciples look at this matthew 28 18 and jesus came notice we're bookending the 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 great commission with with jesus who he is and jesus came and said to them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me now we're putting major emphasis on who jesus is Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of, here's the whole trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am, this is Exodus 3.14, Yahweh, a clear indication of his claiming to be deity, I am, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Well, that sounds a little bit different when I make it that emphasis, right? That roots making disciples and and, and discipleship and uh, I think a whole lot more who Christ is and who he says we are and his performance or what he's done rather than what we need to do. Because when we fail at what we need to do, at least my inclination and perhaps yours is, when I don't lead anybody to Jesus in a long period of time, when I don't put to death that sin, I just feel like an utter failure as a disciple. And I just, all right, I gotta, I'm, I'm done. I gotta quit because if everything rests on me, I can't do it. And we want to give up. And what I want you to realize is that you don't ever need to feel like that. Because discipleship is based primarily on who Christ is and what he has already declared of you. And based on that, the overflow is you're never a failure as a disciple because Jesus has already declared you not. All right, so um, this is what I'm saying then. This is what I'm saying. Uh, that as Jesus' disciples, we don't focus on performance based discipleship but instead we lodge our discipleship in the enduring never-ending already present approval of jesus christ that's already been given to us that's how we lodge our disciples jesus has already declared me righteous and i already have all of his approval our goal is to make disciples both of ourselves and of others by absolutely resting and trusting in what Christ has done, not what we must do. And I'm not discounting what we must do. Instead, I'm making the major emphasis first, what Christ has done. It's moving discipleship away from a performance-based endeavor to a Jesus-based, gospel-centered life. This is huge. You will feel defeated 100% of the time if you can't change your mindset and remember that your discipleship is always based on what jesus has declared of you rather than what you're getting done for the kingdom because we're failures i'm a failure we're all failures 
And we need the gospel to remind us of that, that Christ has now declared us completely righteous. Another way of saying it is this. Your goal is to continually, instead of doing things, your goal is continually instead to fight each day the fight of faith, not works, but the fight of faith, trusting in who Christ has already said you are. That is absolutely essential. I I can't stress it enough. Your everyday fight is a fight for faith in the gospel, a fight for faith in what Christ has declared of you. And from that, it overflows into your evangelism. It overflows into your growing in maturity and holiness. So, if that's the case, then it's absolutely, I mean, absolutely positively necessary that we understand the gospel and who or whom, whichever one's grammatically correct, it's for. <laughs> um, I, I, the, the thing didn't underline in green for me on the, on the word, so I didn't know which one it was. So, um, a few word users. So we must absolutely understand who the gospel is for. Now, let's take a step back, because if you've been in, in church world for a while, especially in really evangelistic churches, we've always just assumed the gospel is for unbelievers. We, they need to hear the gospel. They're not a Christian. They're on a pathway towards hell. And if they don't believe in Jesus, they're going to go there forever. And so the gospel, we need to tell them the good news, about, good news about Jesus and what he's done. And so they can become a Christian. And that's who it's for. But for us, I'm already a Christian. I already know the good news. I already heard the gospel. And so I've already moved on away from that to other things. I'm learning about, you know, how to manage my finances and how to find a good date and how to, you know, smell good for my mate or how to be, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I've actually heard somebody say in a marriage sermon, you need to smell good for your mate. I'm not, I'm not even, it's, it's crazy. It's absolutely insane that I actually heard that. Um, and so here's the thing. What I want us to hear is in, in 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to be looking at I don't want us to make that mistake that makes us think the gospel is for unbelievers, but for us believers, we've got that down. We moved on to the, to the varsity kind of stuff. That's not the case at all. Instead, the gospel is, is with, with just as much certainty that it's for unbelievers, it is with absolute 100% congruent, whatever, as much as it is for unbelievers, it's just as necessary for us. Just as essential as it is for an unbeliever, it's essential for us. So, um, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, and you're going to see this in the first verse of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is writing to Christians. You can see there, it says, Now I would remind you, or I would declare to you, or I would bring to your memory something that you already know. I want to remind you, brothers. This is uh, Adelphoi, but this is meaning brothers who are in Christ, brothers and sisters, those of you who are... um, who are believers, I want to remind you, those who are already in Christ, of the gospel. Did you hear what he just said? Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing to believers, he's telling them, you are, as a believer, in absolute need to continually hear the gospel every single day. So what we're learning here is, the gospel isn't just for unbelievers to get saved. Instead, it's also something more. Instead, perhaps what we're learning here is something deeper, that Christians, just like non-Christians, have a desperate, profound need to be told and reminded of the gospel just as much as an unbeliever's desperation to hear the gospel. You and I, if you're in Christ, 
have an absolute desperate need to every single day be told and reminded of who you are in Christ. And it's just as desperate a situation as it is for the unbeliever who's dying and going to hell for us to be reminded of who we are in Christ. That's profound. That's amazingly profound. And if that's the case, then, whenever I listen to sermons and whenever I hear someone preach, the only thing I'm thinking is, don't tell me three steps to how to. Don't give me a how to be a. Just preach the gospel to me. Please tell me what Christ has done for me and tell me who I am in Jesus. I need to hear that first before you tell me what I got to do or else I just can't do it. I need for you to preach the gospel to me. So that's what I'm hoping to do. Let me, let me quote J.D. Greer right here. This is what he says. The gospel is not only the means by which you get into heaven, but it is the driving force behind every single moment of your life. So it's not something you come to as an unbeliever, get saved and say, okay, I got that. Move away on how to, how to, how to. But instead... What we're saying here is that the gospel is something that you have to return to and live in and be just as desperate for every single day as unbelievers need for it. And their desperation for it is pretty um, amazing. I mean, they're on a pathway towards hell. They are desperate to hear it as well as we are. So I want to, Lord willing, God wants to, I think, um, awaken this in you today. I'm praying, and I have been praying, that the Lord would awaken in you, if not already, a deep desire that you would want to wake up every single morning and rush to, if you will, the truths of the gospel and just be reminded of who you are in Christ. This is what I mean. As you read the scriptures, every single day as you read the scriptures, whenever you're reading them, that you wouldn't find yourself rushing towards application that you wouldn't rush to what I got to do, to my to-do list now. But instead, as you're reading the scriptures, you would stop and, and, and be amazed here and, and stop and linger in and be um, co- contemplating the profound announcement in the gospel of who you already are in Christ. That you would find yourselves not rushing to application. Oh, okay, that's who I am. Now I got to do this. But instead, I'm going to put that off. I need to stop and just think about this more and more and contemplate Christ has declared me to be righteous. This is what it means. This is what it means for all my sins to be forgiven. This is what it means for the resurrection to have happened. And because Christ has been raised, that's, these are the implications of who I am now in Christ. And just let all those truths of who you are now inform that. And we sit and we linger and we think about that before we rush to do an application. And that's what I'm really hoping to do today. Next week, we'll talk about those other things. All I want to do today is rehearse with us all these beautiful truths of the gospel. And I'm praying that the Lord, um, in his graciousness, would awaken in us um, a deep love for Christ. J.D. Greer says this, and I think this is amazing. If you've been in church at any point in time in your life, especially in the South, you more than likely have heard the good news of the gospel. And he says it this way. Being able to articulate the gospel with accuracy is one thing. So if you've been a believer for a while, you can probably articulate, articulate it pretty well. But listen to this. Being able to articulate the gospel with accuracy is one thing. Having its truth captivate your soul is quite another. So I don't want you to just know how to tell someone how to get saved. I want instead, before we get to that, 
for it to captivate your soul. To grab a hold of your affections in such a deep way that you cannot live any differently. The profound announcement of who you are in Christ is so amazing to you that you press in deeper to Christ every single day and need to hear that message. Tell me who I am in Christ. Remind me now before I go do things for Jesus. I need to hear that. So we're going to look at this in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul, speaking to believers, says, it's absolutely essential that I remind you, brothers, of the gospel. This is what he says. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I preach to you which you received and which you stand and by, by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Cephas is Peter, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still asleep, though some of, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, and it, it keeps going there. Um, but we're going to stop at six. And so Paul, as he says, I'm going to remind you brothers of the gospel. He goes and he tells them the gospel right there in verses three and four. Look at verses three and four. It says, for I delivered of you as of first importance. Just notice that first importance. The most preeminent message is the gospel. Not how to, not this and that, but the, the most important thing you need to hear in your life of first importance is this. And then he says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, um, this is a historical announcement about things that happened in history 2,000 years ago. And I think it's pretty amazing that when we read that, we can draw out of that and see there's not one mention of me or you. There's nothing that he says about, everything he just said about the gospel was about Christ. So the gospel is thoroughly Christ-centered. Not that it doesn't affect you or me. It, it, it absolutely does. But when we talk about the gospel, everything that he says is, is centered in on Christ. And this is what he says. There's two things I really want to pull out of these two verses and let us linger in and think on these two profound facts these two profound things that paul says these are things you might have heard but i'm just begging you to say or to ask the lord okay god even though i may have heard these things before let me stop and really consider these things again let these things anew and from this day and every day just be something that amazes me about who you are and then what you've declared me to be let's look at this it says christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. So that's the first thing I want us to consider. The fact that Jesus Christ died, not only this historical um, truth that Jesus died, but that second part, which is for our sins. When we say Christ died for our sins, we mean every single one of them. If you're a believer, Jesus died for every single one of your sins. Not just the sins that you feel bad about, you know, you had this, and I have this big list of all the sins we know that we did against our spouse, or we know we did against our parents, or we know, and I feel really terrible about those, and those things are things that, that sometimes, every once in a while, I feel terrible. Christ died for every single one of those sins. 
not only the ones that you feel terrible about, but Christ also died for all the sins that you don't feel terrible about, that maybe you should. And even the sins that you just have no idea that you've done. He died for every single one of those. And he didn't just die for all the sins you've done, but he's also died for every single sin you ever will do. Christ has died for every single one of our sins. All of them. I think this is absolutely huge to realize because if Christ has died for every single one of your sins, all of them, that means they are all forgiven. Every one of them. There is nothing that keeps you from a right relationship with God. Nothing if you're in Christ. All of your sins have been completely forgiven. Now, one thing we need to realize when we say this phrase, Christ died for our sins, we need to also realize the weight of what our sin is. Matt Chandler says it this way, you can't understand the cross of Christ without understanding the weight of the glory of God and the offense of belittling his name and what the due punishment is for that offense. Which means any sin you've ever committed, though in your mind it might be big or small, any sin we ever do is, a, is an offense to God. It's an offense to the weight of his enormous glory that he has. And all the sins that we do are, com- are continual offenses to him where we are trying to belittle his name and say his glory is not worth anything. And what he's saying is, All of those sins, which are continual offenses to his name, Jesus has come and he has died for every single one of those and they're all forgiven. Now consider this. Christ has died for your sins. That's amazing. I mean, I just think that's absolutely astounding. That is such love that he would do that for us. As a matter of fact, not only has he died for all of our sins, he's also said that you are now, because I've died for every single one of them, when you're in Christ, you are now completely holy. You are completely blameless. Ephesians 1.4 says it this way. It says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This means before the very first word of creation was spoken. For those of you that are in Christ or ever will be in Christ, he has before the foundations of the world, declared you to be holy and blameless. Consider that for a second. You weren't even born yet. Your sins haven't even materialized yet. And he had already decided from eternity past, before creation, before the foundations of the world, that you're going to be holy and blameless. We are in Christ completely holy and blameless. Before you were ever made, before anything was ever made, God already chose you to be blameless before him. And as a matter of fact, Hebrews 12.2 says that he went to the cross, joyfully enduring the cross to make that the case. Joyfully enduring that. I mean, that's absolutely amazing when we consider the deep love that he secured for us, forgiveness and holiness, and he did it with joy. So, what does this mean? It means that when we hear texts that say things about being holy and blameless, etc., that we don't just fly by those. When we hear texts like Colossians 1.22, it says, He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death 
in, or, us to, in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach for him. It, doesn't, it means that we don't fly through that truth and say, okay, yeah, I've heard that before. Instead, we rehearse slowly that. We drink deeply the truths that Jesus is communicating to us through the pages of Scripture that our souls are absolutely desperate to hear these things. We, sometimes we don't even realize it. Our souls are desperate to be reminded of who we are in Christ. Then we can march forward in discipleship. So when we are, are considering this, let's just think about this for a second. Colossians 1.22, He has reconciled us in His body of flesh in order to present us holy and blameless above and above reproach before Him. He has reconciled us. This means He has settled finally, completely. He has settled and ended the conflict that was between us and God. You're saying, what conflict? I didn't have a conflict with God. Yes, you did. You had a conflict with God. And Jesus has already come and settled that conflict completely. There was a war against us and God that we had waged with our sin. And Jesus has come and settled it completely. As a matter of fact, he was the one that gave his own life to settle it. And now, if you're in Christ, the only thing you have with God is peace. He has reconciled us to Christ. He has also declared us holy and blameless. And if you're like me, you're thinking, blameless? Me. Because I feel like Paul, the chief of sinners. <laughs> I know my sin better than anybody else. And he said that I'm blameless and I'm holy. This is amazing news. Yes, this is exactly what I'm saying. This means that no one can bring a charge against you or I regarding our sin and it will stick. No one. That's why Romans 8.33 says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. God has declared you justified. God has declared you innocent. God has declared you righteous. And if that's the case, no one can bring a charge against you. There is nobody that can throw a charge up against you and it's going to stick because the God of the universe through the person of Jesus has declared you right now, though you may feel like the chief of all sinners, holy and blameless from the foundations of the world. I mean, can you, that is amazing news. Now we're going to start understanding that our discipleship is not based on what we're doing, but instead what Christ has done. Who we are as a disciple is always and must be centered in on the personal work of Jesus and what he has declared of us, or else we, or I know I will, I will just give up. Unless someone keeps telling me, Jesus has declared you 100% holy and righteous from the foundations of the earth, and he has secured it himself by going to the cross to make that happen. Woo, that's good news. Y'all are with me. I, we had Dwayne here last week. Y'all are supposed to be amen and getting into this. So um, anyway, now, another thing is that we are above reproach. Above reproach means we are above criticism, above blame, above accusation, and above rebuke. Rebuke. Jesus has declared us completely above reproach. Now, that's that first part that we're looking at here in 1 Corinthians 15, where it says Christ died for our sins. A lot of times, especially in, um, in churches, we focus in on the death of Jesus and what that death has accomplished for us. But sometimes, um, unless it's Easter, we don't necessarily talk about the resurrection. And so the resurrection isn't just some kind of appendage to the good news that says, oh yeah, by the way, um, you know, Jesus you know, resurrected, you know, so that's good news too. He, he came out of the grave. He didn't just live there in that, in that, 
in that grave anymore. It's not like the appendage to the good news. The resurrection itself is what makes the good news possible. Without the resurrection, without Jesus coming back to life, we've got nothing. I mean, this is not, Paul continuing in 1 Corinthians 15 says, if Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead, then we just need to go eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we may die. Like, without the resurrection, it's nothing. So the good news, this great news of the gospel, centers in on also where it says in verse 4 that he was buried and that he was raised. His resurrection shows us that evil, Satan, sin, death, None of those things could keep him dead. He defeated every single one of those things and then resurrected, which means every one of those things are absolutely defeated in your life. Evil, Satan, sin, death have no power in your life whatsoever because Jesus defeated them and then resurrected from the dead and has displayed it to you. Nothing keeps you from being in Christ because I've defeated it all for you. So the resurrection is huge. It's an essential piece of the gospel. It's an essential piece of the good news. He was raised. It's not just an afterthought. It's absolutely essential. So it's crucial, as I've said this before, crucial for us to stop and ponder all that the resurrection has done for us in the gospel. Not just today, but every day. We need to think on these things before we get to what we have to do. Jesus' resurrection is proof for us that Jesus has completely defeated Satan, sin, and death, and evil, and that now we are completely free from them. And this is how it plays itself out. Um, Whenever you have seasons in your life, when you have continual sin, you find yourself in um, a continual habitual sin, whether you just hate it and want to get rid of it, or whether you really just absolutely love it and nobody knows. Um, at the end of finally being convicted by it, you start thinking to yourself, there's nothing I can do. I can never, ever get rid of that sin. I am a slave to that particular sin. Because we all live in the Romans 7 feeling. Paul in Romans 7 says, all these things I don't want to do, I end up doing those things. But all these things I want to do, I don't ever do all those things and I'm kind of living in this in this weird place where I'm already justified I'm already declared holy and righteous but sin is still working itself out in me before I finally die and go to heaven and then I'm glorified and I'm finally no longer sinning anymore and that's when I won't sin but while I'm in the meantime I keep doing these things and these things right here they defeat me and so what is so crucial about the resurrection is this when we think that we can't get out of these sins, no matter what, we're defeated by, we are slaves to these, these sins. The gospel tells us that we're not slaves to sins. Romans 6.18 says this, we have been set free from sin and we are now slaves of righteousness. We are not slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness, slaves to holiness. What Jesus has said is that in Christ we are continually working towards being more and more holy. That's how it plays itself out in everyday life. Because I can feel, maybe you don't feel this way, but I can feel really, really defeated whenever sin doesn't seem to get put to death as fast as I want it to be in my life. And I just fret and say, I'm a slave to sin. I cannot kill it. But what the gospel has said is, this sin that you feel like you're a part of, that you just can't break, Jesus has already broken. 
and you're a slave to righteousness. I need to hear that every single day. I will not defeat sin in my life. The, the Romans eight thirteen put to death by the Spirit. I will not see it happen put to death unless I hear. You don't have to think, I gotta break the sin, but Jesus has already broken that sin for you at the cross. I have to hear that if I'm gonna have victory. And I think that you're probably the exact same way, that we need to hear what Christ has done for us. That's why it's absolutely essential for us to contemplate these things regarding the resurrection. Contemplate what Paul, I mean, what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 15 about what Christ has done. I don't have a ton of time, but I'll just rehearse some of these things in this very chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 about what Jesus has said the resurrection has done for you. You can look at it verses 14 through 20 later, but it says at least four things. Number one, and I'm going to say them positively. He says them negatively. If the resurrection hasn't happened then, I'm going to say them positively. That number, first thing is, our preaching or our proclaiming the gospel is full of worth. Another thing is that we are no longer in our sin. The next thing the resurrection has done is, we will live forever with Jesus. Oh, that's such good news. We will live forever with Jesus. The resurrection guarantees that. The next one is, not only does the life to come have meaning, but this life now has meaning based on the resurrection. That's really good news. So those are just some of the things regarding the resurrection that are absolutely key that I think we need to rehearse in our minds and linger and con- contemplate and think on before we get to, now I gotta go do stuff. It's so key to have a gospel-centered discipleship and that it all is absolutely hinged on and focused on and centered on Jesus and what he's done and who he has declared me before I try to go do things or else I will be defeated absolutely. Now, back, let's backtrack over to 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to look at verse 1 and 2 again because we've seen the gospel in 3 and 4, but I want you to see how Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about our receiving of the gospel. He, he talks about it in, in kind of like stages, if you will. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel, which I preached to you, in which, here it is, in which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. This is interesting language, right? Because I've always heard, you ask Jesus in your heart, everything's secure, and don't have to worry about anything. But he's actually saying, in which you received, and then also in which you stand, and then you're also being saved. Present, indicative, being saved. That's interesting language. And so what we're seeing here, it's critical for us to understand the, uh, the nature of our belief, the nature of our faith, and how it relates to this good news of the gospel. We exercise this initial faith that he's talking about where we receive forgiveness. It says, in which you received. This is our repentance of sin, our acknowledgement that we are absolutely desperate for forgiveness. There's no way that we can ever earn righteousness on our own and that we need the, the righteousness of Christ to be given to us. And that's when he justifies us. That's when he declares us righteous. That's whenever the, the, the truth that we've been holy and blameless for eternity past has now been revealed to us and that we realize in Christ. We are absolutely holy and blameless. And then he says, by which you are, I'm sorry, in which you received, in which you stand. This stand is exactly what I've been talking about the entire time. This is your ongoing return. So when we get saved, we don't say, okay, I got the gospel. Now I'll move on to, you know, how to do something. Instead, whenever we get, become to Christ, it's an absolute return to the gospel that we see 
I am just as desperate for the gospel as the unbeliever, and it's where I have to stand. I don't ever move. They come to the cross and get saved. I came to the cross, and I stay at the foot of the cross. I don't ever leave the foot of the cross. It's not like I get saved and I go do stuff. I need to stay at the foot of the cross just like the unbeliever needs to come and hear Christ. And that's what we're talking about, this stand. This is standing in and being reminded of who we are in Christ and what he has declared of us. And as we do that, that's how we're being saved. That's how we're being saved. So the object of our faith never changes. The object of our faith is always Jesus and what he's done for us. So this means that the same faith that is needed to save you at first, to justify you, in which you need to receive forgiveness, is the same faith that's needed in order for you to continue in the faith or be sanctified or remind you of what Christ has done and what he has declared of you at saving faith. This is why it's absolutely essential for, for us to say continually, remind me of the gospel then, please. Don't tell me how-tos. Don't tell me three steps. Just tell me who Christ has declared me of first. I need to hear those things before I start doing. I need it all to be centered in on the person, the work of Christ, not my work. So this means, um, as a pastor, for those who come and are a part of Remedy, that I am far more interested. Now, this doesn't mean I'm not interested, okay? Okay. I am far more interested not in you being moral, not in your moral aptitude and the way you work out your ethics. I'm far more interested first in your fight for faith, that you believe that Jesus has declared you holy and righteous and you fight for faith in believing that. Because I believe that once you know that and you keep fighting for that, that will always inform your morality. I'm not saying morality is not important. I think it's a pretty important thing in the church that we're not immoral. We're not just licentious people that just run around and sin it up. That's bad, really, really bad. But my main concern is if I just try to tweak your behavior and make you moral, you could totally miss Jesus. You could totally, you could just be a moral person. And there are a ton of moral people in the world that are lost that don't know Christ. So my main concern is your fight for faith in the gospel and what he's declared of you. And I think that informs your morality. So this means um, whenever you're proclaiming the gospel to people, you don't focus on morality. You focus on the gospel. I was with my uh, professor last week and he was telling me that he was with um, a couple that were living together and he had... uh, trying to tell him about the gospel, and he had a, the best inroad through the girl. And so he is trying to tell her the gospel, and he, she trusted Christ. She, she understood the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, and put her faith in Jesus. And he knew at this moment, everything inside of him said, all right, I need to tell her to move out of the house. And he wanted to tell her to move out of the house because he, he was thinking that's the most moral thing. But he, he, he knew that she didn't have anywhere to go. And she went back to the, he said, man, sin is so messy and we live in such a messy Genesis 3 world. And so he goes and he says, um, yes, I think you should move out, but I know you can't. And so I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to say that you're not a Christian because you won't. She's, she went to her husband or her boyfriend and said, you know, just I'm a Christian now. And so we're not going to, you know, live together in that way anymore. And so... He had to let her go back to that messy situation because he's more concerned about her fight for faith than morality. Within just a few weeks, he became a Christian too. Now, my my seminary professor 
performed their marriage, and now they are both believers that are married, and they're pursuing Christ. And so my, my point is that if we just pursue, pursue morality, before he even shares the gospel, he's like, you've got to move out. You've got to get your, all your sin straight first before you can come to Jesus. I think we miss out because Luke 15 says, while that guy is laying in the pods of the pigs, he doesn't clean himself up before he goes to his dad. He goes just as nasty as he can to his dad and the father sprints out to him and hugs him and kisses him and says, my son who was lost has finally come home. So I think we focus more on the fight for faith than morality. But don't hear me say morality is not important because I think it is. I really think it is. So I've been talking about gospel-centered here. Um, and there's a danger in using the phrase gospel-centered, 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 because um, if I keep putting on the forefront the announcement, then all of us can think that this announcement or this good news or this gospel is the most important thing whenever the person that it's about is the most important thing. So when I say gospel-centered, I mean Jesus-centered. I mean Jesus-based announcement of what he has done for you on the cross. So another way for me to try to explain what I mean here is this. Um, The desire of my heart and the prayer that I've been praying is that you and I will find ourselves so enamored with with Christ, so enamored with Jesus, that our heart aches deeply for him, that our heart aches deeply to know what are the things that he said about us, and that the best part about being a Christian is... Because he has declared us these things, the best part about being a Christian is that we get to freely have access to him, to know him, to be with him, to dine or commune with him daily, to be enamored with him and have relationship with him. That we, the best thing about being a Christian isn't that we've stopped sinning, although that's good. The best thing about being a Christian doesn't, isn't that, oh, now we don't have to go to hell because it's hot there and terrible and that's where, you know, Hitler is and I don't want to go there. That the best thing about being a Christian is not that we don't sin anymore, that we don't have to go to hell, though those things are good. But the best thing about being a Christian is that we get to know and experience and commune deeply with Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. Um, This is what I mean. John Piper frames this idea this way when he talks about the beauty of Christ, the most important thing in the gospel is, this is what he says, the best and final gift of the gospel is that we gain Christ. That's the best and final gift is that, in his book called God is the Gospel, the good news is that we get God. The good news is that we get to know and experience the creator of the universe and be his child. He says it this way, the gospel is the good news of our final and full enjoyment of the glory of God in the face of Christ, that we get to enjoy Jesus forever. That's the good news of the gospel. So he asked this one critical question that I think all of us need to think about. So I'm going to close with this, this question. This is what he says. And this is, this is so indicting upon us about what we truly um, venture after in our, in our walk with Jesus. Is it ease, comfort, or whatever, or is it Jesus that we want. This is what he says. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you've ever had on earth, with all the food you've ever liked, and all the leisure activities you've ever enjoyed, fishing, hunting, whatever your, you know, our favorite leisure activities are, if you could have that in heaven, and all the natural beauties that you've ever seen, 
all the physical pleasures that you've ever tasted, if that was heaven for you and there was no human conflict, no natural disasters, could you be satisfied with that heaven if Jesus Christ was not there? Pure bliss, all those things, all the luxuries of everything, but Jesus isn't there. Because if that's your idea of heaven, then you've missed the gospel. Heaven is Jesus. That's the final end. So that's why he says the best and final gift of the gospel is that we gain Christ. Not luxury, not food, not physical pleasure, not escape from cancer, not escape from natural disasters, but Jesus. And so that's why I think it's so absolutely crucial before we go into talking about discipleship and making disciples and leading people to Jesus and killing sin in our lives, that we center everything in on the person and the work of Christ and who he is, that he is our full satisfaction and he is our, our, our person that we live our entire lives for and what he's done on the cross and how it informs us and tells us who we are. We have to center in on that first before we move into the things we have to do. So that's why I wanted to spend an entire week on the gospel itself. And if this is a message you've heard your entire life, and this is all familiar, I'm praying, and I have been praying, that some of those things just popped out to you again, re-amazed you, if you will, as the most beautiful thing you've ever heard. Or, if this is all new information to you, this is something where you thought, because you lived in the South and there are churches everywhere that you knew how to be a Christian, that you just heard the gospel is belief in Jesus, receiving forgiveness for all of your sins and that he has now declared you completely holy and that it's not based on your life with Jesus, it's not based on what you do but what he's done, if that's the first time you've ever heard that and you're just like I have never heard that before in my life because even in North America though we may be church saturated we are certainly losing ground and being gospel saturated very very few churches or more and more churches are preaching the gospel less this is just statistical facts um, that if you've never heard that that you are finding yourself (laughs) amazed with that absolutely amazed with that and all you want to do is respond by saying yes Jesus Please forgive me my sin. I want to trust you and I want to walk with you. That's what I want. I want Christ in my life. And I hope you come back next week because next week we're going to talk about what it means now and how we go and make disciples and what it means for a remedy to be make disciple makers and how that will look specifically. That's next week. But I wanted to start with the gospel. So as we go into our time of response here, um, Let the Holy Spirit really lead and guide. Let the truths that we sing, we're going to sing songs that just talk about things about Jesus and things about the gospel. When you see those, let the truths sink deep. God, what I'm about to sing is a a truth about you. Let Let it drive down deep into my soul and express itself out in adoration, deep adoration for Christ. Let yourself respond to that. Don't just sing words because they're on a screen. But consider the deep truths that you're singing and let them drive down deep into your soul and explode out into worship. And here's the other thing. If you're not in Christ and you want to be a believer, come talk to me. 
while we're singing. Come talk to me after church. Talk to the person that you came with, who you know is a believer. We want to tell you how to become a Christian today and start this gospel-centered, Jesus-centered life in forgiveness and being a believer. So we're going to go into a time of worship here, and I just encourage you to uh, respond accordingly to the way the Spirit is leading. If you spent time at Remedy, what I've said more than likely is stuff you've heard before. (laughs) I hope. I hope that's not new information. But here's the thing. It never, ever should get old. Ever. Ever. So ask Christ to amaze you with what he's declared of you. If you're in Christ, that you are now, because of Jesus, 100% holy, 100% blameless. That no one can throw a charge against you and it stick. Because Jesus has said that's the case. That's good. That's good stuff. So I'm going to pray and we're going to go into a time of response. And I just pray you're obedient to the Spirit's leading. Let's pray. Jesus, what good news it is. What amazing news it is. That because of your work on the cross, you have now declared us holy and blameless. We need to. I am so desperate to hear that message every day. And there's days where I know that I don't live in that desperation, where I'm not quite um, amazed or reminded of my desperate need for that, but I have a profound need every day to be told who I am in Christ, just like the unbeliever has a profound need to hear the gospel for the first time. I have a profound need to hear it again. Every single one of us do. So as we respond, Lord, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would come and focus our minds on Christ that he would be the final good gift of this gospel and that our affections for him would be moved, our affections for him would be mighty as we sing out songs of worship to him. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.